This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. It was childish, really. The kind of schoolyard name-calling that might have involved mentions of someone's mother or ugly shaved dogs walking backwards. I'm sure you can recall a few from your own childhood. Except the ones hurling the insults weren't children. No, far from it. They were grown men, fighting a war. During the Revolutionary War, both the Americans and the British troops disparaged each other with the most deprecating put-downs they could come up with. It was war, after all. But instead of mere taunts, Both sides used ditties, simple songs with memorable, pointed lyrics. You see, the American and British troops played fifes and drums to signal battle, wake up, perform chores, and boost the men's fighting morale as they headed to battle. Both sides sang a variety of verses, mocking the other. Each had their favorite targets, too. Americans loved to insult King George III, and the British loved to insult the Americans. For the British Redcoats, the melody they'd chosen had been around for a couple hundred years or more. But it was a quick-witted British army doctor who was credited with revising the lyrics. From there, soldiers came up with even more verses. And the more degrading, the better. It became a kind of competition within their troops. The title alone was meant to be as insulting as possible. Yankee Doodle Dandy. And yes, we sing this as a patriotic song today, despite the original meaning behind the words. During war, Yankee was British slang for being an American rebel. Whether derived from a similar-sounding Cherokee word meaning coward, or a Dutch word meaning little Johnny, Yankee wasn't meant as a compliment. A doodle was a bumbling, sloppy fool, which is how the primly-dressed British redcoats saw the Americans. And the word dandy was an alternate word for a man obsessed with clothing— In the mid-1700s, the most flamboyant and eccentrically dressed of these men were called macaronis, which had nothing to do with Italian pasta. Macaronis were part of the British subculture, who wore the tiniest of hats upon the largest of wigs, loud and flashy waistcoats, bright hosiery, and dainty shoes. In Britain, these men's suspected orientation was nothing short of scandalous. In the song, the bumbling American rode to town on a pony instead of a real horse. Lacking social grace or status, he placed a feather in his hat and declared himself as fashionable as the macaronis. The innuendo was that the inept Americans couldn't even manage to be a proper member of the gay community. In April of 1775, the British played the tune from Boston to Lexington and Concord. The battle with the Americans didn't go in their favor, though. And as the Redcoats hastily retreated, the drums, fife, and singing 
played back the perky tune once more. Not from the British, though. The Americans now mocked them with their own rendition. One officer condemned the act, claiming the rebels had made them dance until they were tired, and it wouldn't be the last time, either. After defeating the British at Saratoga in 1777, the Americans repeatedly serenaded the Redcoats with the song, causing an English officer to say hearing the once degrading words sung back at them in their moment of defeat was pure agony. The Americans had turned the insult around, making the tune their victory song, minimizing the mockery and disparaging the words meant as weapons. As schoolyard insults went, the rebels did a pretty good job with that old I'm rubber and you're glue technique. The Americans sang it again at Yorktown, much to the Redcoats' chagrin. The catchy ditty became the state anthem for Connecticut. Before long, the British came to loathe the song they'd written. It haunted them on every battlefield. The rebels even sang the song at Fort McHenry, while Francis Scott Key wrote America's second national anthem. Yes, I said second, because Yankee Doodle Dandy was America's first. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. This episode is sponsored by Intuit. Here's a story for you. Once upon a time, a young woman was haunted by the ghosts of bad financial decisions, with credit card debt and an empty savings account looming over her every day. But when she tried to ignore these ghosts, they only grew bigger and scarier. And these ghosts of her bad financial decisions were stopping her from living her best life. So she decided to face them head on and take control of her finances with help from Intuit. Intuit helps you face your financial fears with confidence through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.
It was seen as the ugliest structure in Paris. When Gustave Eiffel's wrought iron structure began construction in July of 1887, over 300 artists, sculptors, and fellow architects petitioned the World's Fair Commission against the plan. It looked like a giant black smokestack, they protested. The tower would be a monstrosity, so hideous and loathed that even the commercially-minded Americans wouldn't want it. Their complaints were ignored, though. That same commissioner helped choose Eiffel's design from over 100 other entries in a contest for the chance to build the centerpiece for the 1889 Paris World's Fair. And while the tower bears Gustave's name, it actually was one of his employees who drew the original design. Gustave rejected the engineer's first submission, asking him to go back and add more flourishes. At a thousand feet tall, the Eiffel Tower became the world's tallest building. Over 18,000 pieces of iron were used each of the four corners oriented with the four points of the compass, and for opening day, the tower had been painted a reddish-brown color. While visitors from around the world marveled at the structure during the fair, most Parisians considered it an eyesore. Novelist Guy de Maupassant reportedly ate his lunch at the tower's base, the only place he could find where he could look at the skyline and not see the tower. Since Eiffel had paid 80% of the construction costs himself, the city granted him 20 years to recoup his money before tearing the tower down for scrap metal. For a small fee, people could take an elevator to the third floor to enjoy a view of the city. In the past, only the wealthy could see Paris from such heights, and only from a hot air balloon. Ten years after the World's Fair, the tower was painted yellow to match the ever-popular style trends of the city. While the tower brought in modest funds from visitors looking to view the world's most romantic city, it wasn't enough. To make the tower more useful, Eiffel had a meteorology lab installed on the third floor, buying the tower a little more time. In 1910, during World War I, the government granted Eiffel an extension. The French found that the structure was useful to transmit telegraphs to ships in the Atlantic Ocean. The tower was also used to relay Zeppelin alerts to dispatch troop reinforcements. They found other uses for it, too. In 1909, Eiffel installed a wind tunnel at the tower's base. Companies and inventors have run thousands of tests in that tunnel, including the Wright brothers' airplanes. In 1911, a German scientist used the tower to detect radiation levels, known today as cosmic rays. In fact, 72 of the country's most acclaimed scientists have their names engraved on the first-floor gallery. Daredevils have also taken to the tower— the first in 1912, where a tailor attempted to fly from the first floor tower using a spring-loaded parachute. He crashed, though he luckily survived. Fourteen years later, another pilot attempted to fly between the four corners and died when his plane became entangled in the aerial wire station and burst into flames. Between 1925 and 1936, the French automobile company Citron paid to use the tower as a giant billboard, the lights on the 100-foot-tall letters burned so bright that Charles Lindbergh used the Eiffel Tower as a beacon to land in Paris during his transatlantic solo flight of 1927. In 1940, the French cut the elevator cables to the tower. The Germans, who occupied Paris, were forced to climb the stairs to fly the Nazi flag from the top. Hitler later ordered the tower destroyed, but his own general disobeyed him. By 1957, television transmitters were attached to the tower, and at last the tower was declared a national treasure in 1964. But it was an event 50 years earlier, in 1914, that helped solidify the tower as a permanent structure, and it all had to do with capturing a spy. 
That year, a radio message was intercepted from the tower between Germany and Spain. The details not only allowed the French to counter-organize an attack, they also captured and executed the notorious spy, Matahari. It's ironic, really, and more than a little curious. Although millions visit the famous landmark every year for what they can see, it was something invisible that ultimately saved the Eiffel Tower from becoming scrap metal. Radio Waves I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious.